Good morning. It is still morning. Yes, it is. Turn in your Bibles to Samuel. We are going through the book of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, uh, over the next several months. Uh, Before I read our scripture lesson this morning, let me just take a moment and encourage all of you who were not here last week, uh, but consider yourself part of our community here, to go on our website. On the front page, you will see a picture that says, Building Expansion 2018, Learn More. If you click on it, you will see a PDF that will show you our uh, expansion drawings. It'll have uh, the history of King's Chapel, last week's sermon, and the video we showed last week called Hear the Stories. They're, they're testimonies of the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God that he has poured out upon us here as a community through some of you here uh, and to the lives of others. Just wonderful testimonies. On it as well, you'll see Catch the Visions, about 20, 25 minutes. Uh, uh, I spoke from Colossians so that everybody could be on the same page and, and understand why we're expanding our building. We've gone to two services about a year and a half. Our hope is that we'll have a bigger building so we can gather together as one family at 10 o'clock, uh, hopefully in the fall, as it was my hope. But anyway, we'll see what happens. But it's more than sheetrock and wood. It's not about a building. It's about people because we love people. So I, I appreciate if you could go there and look at our... Um, I look at that, those two things, at least. Um, our verse last week was Colossians chapter 4. We adapted Paul's writing to the church of Colossae. Uh, it goes along with our mission statement, right? That's what we're all about. We, we exist and we, uh, to glorify God, to make much of God by living on mission with him as he's a missionary God, seeking and saving lost people, making disciples of gospel-centered worship, transformation, and community. And we adopted Colossians chapter 4, and this is our prayer for King's Chapel. I hope you join us on this prayer. We should watch and pray, watch and pray, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, and that we may make it clear, making the best use of the time, redeeming the time. And we're asking everyone who calls King's home, if this is your house, this is your place, I mean, if you're part of our family, that you would uh, pray and, and pray with eyes that are open, pray with the Holy Spirit, and, and he, so he guides and leads you who is God wants you to talk to about Jesus. Really, that, that's the bottom line, that we may show the gospel through generosity and love and declare it with words, showing the mystery of Christ, not only here in Albany County, but also around the world. We're asking everyone, again, if, if King's is your home, we're asking for you to do this. If you're here, uh, King's not your home yet, you're not really sure you're visiting, this isn't for you, this is a family affair, we're asking everybody to take a building expansion card home through the double doors, left-hand side, you'll find them there, a pledge card, and they'll be praying on what God, what kind of generous gift God would put on your heart to give toward this building expansion. We want to put that on a mortgage, we want to put a down payment on the building expansion, obviously it costs money, uh, we're not one of those crazy give us your money and you give $10 and we'll bless it and give you $1,000. We're not going there. Um, but God does bless us as we give to his work. Remember, I mentioned last week, the generosity of God people is not about guilt and shame. It's about the generosity of Christ and the goodness of the gospel. And now God, Jesus, with his infinite generosity, gave his life for us. We want that to be the motivation of love, not guilt. Also, we recognize that everything we have really does belong to God anyway. So we're really distributors, not uh, uh, givers, really, in in a technical sense. So grab a card, pray over it. It's going to go just to the financial elder. No one else is going to see this. We're asking for you to fill out this card. Pray, fill out the card by March 4th. Bring it in. We'll have a box for you to put it in. And then April 8th, we'll we'll, um, collect the offering and put it down uh, toward the building. Um, 
There'll be other opportunities as we move forward to give towards the building, but we just wanted to get a, a, a sum of money and put it down so we can get as low as mortgage as possible. So please consider that. Take that card home. Through the double doors to the left-hand side, okay? Um, so open your Bibles. We're in First Samuel. What I want to do is, let me, let me read. You know what, kids? Let me dismiss the kids. Kids, you're dismissed. I, I made the kids suffer through that whole intro in the first service. I thought it only fair. To do it to you guys too as well. Be excited. That's it. Bless you as you go as kids are learning on their appropriate age level while we're in 1 Samuel. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the word of God to you. I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 11 through 26. We're going through the book, expository preaching, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we'll probably take bigger chunks to get through the, the, the verse, but later down the road. So I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 11 through 26 to you, and then we'll pick up in 27 when we get there just to save some time. But I want you to get the flavor and you know, understand what's going on uh, with the story. So hear the word of the living God. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord, that's Samuel, in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when men offered sacrifices, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling and with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or caldron or pot. All that the fork, fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take some of what you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Nice guy. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, verse 17, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 22, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with women who were serving in the entrance of the tent of the meetings. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for them. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. May God add a blessing to the reading of his Holy, infallible word. Interesting story, huh? The book of Samuel opens, you remember, in God's redemptive history. After the era of the judges, as the judges' era is closing, 
We know in the judges, we know that under the leadership of Joshua, the Israelites had conquered the promised land. They settled down. They become complacent. They become rebelling. They, they, they've rebelled against God. God would then discipline them, send an army sometimes. They would repent and cry out to God, and God would send them a judge. That's the era of the judges. And they would cry out, God would send a judge to lead them back to himself. It was a regular occurrence. They'd rebel. They'd cry out. They'd repent. And God would send them a judge. In fact, the judges close is very important that we understand the era of the judges closes in that book. You can read it in the book of Judges with these words. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So in the midst of this dark and troubled time in Israel, as they're settling in the promised land, the book of Samuel will introduce a man named Samuel who's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a judge, a true leader of Israel who anoint the first king, Saul, and will then anoint the beloved king, David. It's a transition from theocracy to monarchy. And even though God had said, I'm going to give you a king, that's, that's the monarchy, it was never a place where God would say, your king will rule over you and I want nothing to do with you. The king was supposed to listen and obey the voice of God and be their king over Israel, but we know from the first king that doesn't happen. Here in the story, as we pick up the story, if you remember, Samuel's mom is Hannah. She was barren. And she gives birth to her first son, and his name, of course, is Samuel. She weaned him three to four years. We don't know exactly how long it took. Uh, and then brought him to the tabernacle to dwell there, in the temple or the tabernacle to dwell there. And she had made a vow, if you remember. And she was keeping her vow. She said, God, you give me a son. I'm a barren woman. Uh, if you give me a son, I will vow to give him back to you, that he will go to the temple, to the tabernacle. It was the temple, the whole temple wasn't erected yet. But I will send him to the tabernacle, and he will dwell there and serve you there all the days of his life. Two weeks ago, we saw her fulfill her vow, and she prays. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, is the song of Hannah, or the, or the prayer of Hannah. They call it the song. It has similarities, uh, of uh, uh, lyrical similarities, Old Testament hymns. And Hannah prays. She has this boy. She's going back to the temple. She's giving the Lord the the vow that she had promised. She's leaving her son, three to four-year-old son, Samuel, in Shiloh at the tabernacle. The first thing she does in verses one through three, she rehearses the attributes of God. Her heart is rejoicing and her joy and delight is in God alone and all that he is. Verses four through eight, Hannah sees this reversal of the world's standards that when you trust God, when you believe in God, things look different. She understood how human power and human weakness looks differently when you have a relationship with God. And then finally, verses 9 through 10, Hannah has this renewed hope in the coming king. Now, Israel had not a king yet, but Hannah is praying, and she prays in chapter 10, the second part of chapter 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and exalt the horn, that's the power and authority and victory, and will exalt the horn of his anointed. The word anointed in Hebrew means Messiah. So you have a king who's anointed, a king who is a Messiah. And, and this, this song is a prophetic song. It's a, a prophetic prayer. It looks forward to a time where Israel will have a king, but it looks even further to the ultimate king, the anointed king. His name is Jesus the Christ. And we saw last week as we concluded that Mary, the mother of Jesus, in her prayer in Luke 2, 
Mary, this, this prayer that she prays is called the Magnificat. It, it's a song, and, and Mary is, is singing and, and praying about the coming king. And, and, and Hannah's song is this anticipation of Mary's song. And Mary's song is really just to show us, in some ways, that the fulfillment of all the Old Testament culminates in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hannah's prayer is prophetic and comes to reality with the child that Mary has. His name is Jesus. And as Hannah is praying in the Shiloh, in, in the tabernacle, we, it ends with this verse, chapter 1 of Samuel, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 11. Elkanah, and of course his wife Hannah, they're at, they're, they're at Shiloh, they're giving over their son to, to the place of the temple. They go home to Ramah. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Mom and dad are leaving their son, three or four years old, and they're going off. And what is he doing? They look back and there's this little boy. He's ministering in the house of God. And that is the way that the narrator of this story is going to go about the rest of the chapter. You see a wicked family, Eli and his sons, and this wickedness and this rebellion, this failure to properly father his children, and... Samuel and his family and the love of that family. And we see this contrasting going on in this narrative that we're going to look at today. It's almost as if the Lord, almost as if the narrator focused in on Samuel and all the, the ministry that he's doing, serving and, and worshiping and caring for the, of the people of God. And then wide, wide scope, and you see Eli and his sons just wicked mess. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that's why what I wanted to do is I want to look at this in five different movements. We'll go through it. You'll be done by dinner. But because I want you to see the contrast, because the narrator wants you to see this contrast. So first, the selfish sins around worship. Secondly, Samuel's service before the Lord. It's zooming back in. And then zooming back out, sexual sins against the women in the church. Then spoken judgment. God will judge. God had enough. And then we'll focus back in and we'll see Jesus, signals of the Savior. So that's where we're at. So number one, we see the contrast. Chapter 2, verse 11, the boy's ministering before the Lord. Our verse opens up in verse 12. As Samuel's ministering, verse 12 says this. Now the sons, though, of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. In other words, they did not acknowledge the Lord. They did not recognize the Lord in their lives. Where are they? They're in the temple. They're ministering as ministers in the temple, and they don't know the Lord. There's a shock, huh? Never heard that one before. <laughs> Here they're supposed to be representing God to the people, ministering to them. Uh, they, they, but they don't know the Lord. I mean, literally it means God has no place in their life. God has no say in their life. That's what it means. We see that in Pharaoh. When, when, when Moses came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's like, I don't know the Lord. Yeah, there's no relationship there. So these wicked men who had no regard for the Lord are in the temple serving the Lord and worshiping the Lord. Obviously, their heart's not in it. It reminds me of Jesus. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Y'all doing the work. Y'all doing what needs to be done. But there's no relationship with me whatsoever. 
It's all about doing nothing with relationship. These godless men, worthless men, are doing what's necessary to fulfill their job, but they're missing the key element, and that's a relationship with the Lord our God. In fact, the word worthless men literally means sons of Belial. Okay, that's important. Because God is calling them worthless men in chapter 2, verse 12. If you remember in chapter 1, verse 16, Eli sees Hannah praying in the temple, praying in the tabernacle, and he calls her a drunk, a worthless woman. Same word. Female, obviously. She's the daughter of Belial. He can't even see. His own sons are the worthless ones, and he calls Hannah the one of faith, a worthless daughter. It came to be known as, as Bilal became to be known as the prince of evil. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul will write to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 15, and he'll talk about those who are unequally yoked. You've heard this before, maybe? You're unequally yoked. That unbelievers are partnering with, with, with uh, believers with unbelievers. Righteousness, he says, and lawlessness. Light, dark. Believer, unbeliever. Christ with Belial. So in other words, Lawlessness and darkness and unbelief are a picture of this Bilal. That's what these guys are called. Verses 13 through 17 tells us what's happening. What's going on in Shiloh? Without getting bogged down in the Mosaic law, people have come to worship the Lord and these priests were not following the specific instruction of the law on how the animals would be brought into the into this. Uh, to the temple, how the animals would be sacrificed, and what parts of the meat would go to the family that brought the sacrifice, and what parts of the meat will go to the priest. It's all laid out. Have you ever read Leviticus or Deuteronomy? It is really clearly laid out. God made it very clear how you are supposed to worship, but not these guys. (laughs) They would nonchalantly walk up with a three-pronged fork a barbecue fork, right? Plunge it in the kettle, and whatever came up, that was theirs. And let me tell you, I, it doesn't say this. I'm just saying, if they pulled out a chicken wing, it's going back. I'm just saying. They wanted the real meat. I mean, you could see the sarcasm all over this. You could see it wasn't about what they got. is what they wanted. Sort of like giving the pastoral staff all the codes to your bank accounts. We could rummage through it, and then whatever's left, you can have. We're not doing that. But I'm just saying it's the same thing, Okay? But that's not all. Verse 15. The fat of the offering, which, by the way, according to the law, was given to the Lord. You would burn the fat as, a, as, a, a, uh, as an honoring of the Lord. And these men, or the, the priests, uh, the, the sons of Eli and their little cohorts, or under them, were instructing them to just say to, to the people, don't burn the fat. Don't honor the Lord, because that's what the Mosaic Law calls for. Don't burn it. Give it to me. I, 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 want, I don't want it cooked. I don't want it boiled. I want the filet mignon, and I'll cook it myself. That's what they were saying. I, they're failing to honor God. They wanted to meet themselves. Again, all this is laid out in the law. It reminded me, as I was studying, it reminded me that these priests, these, these sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are living under the culture of the judges. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I don't have to obey the Lord. I'll do what I want. Now, if you're not familiar with the law, the priests, when, 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 when Israel uh, took the promised land, the tribes were given land. 
The priests weren't given any land. They were not to have businesses. They were just to minister in the tabernacle, in the temple. That was their job. And their worth or their value or their, their financial you know, support came from worshipers. That was the law. That they would come and they would give their sacrifices. They would, they would take care of the temple. That's what they were supposed to do. It's absolutely amazing then to see these two guys taking only what they want for their own pleasure. Crazy back then what they used to do, huh? Almost like asking for a $65 million jet that I need and you ought to give me one. Sound familiar? I won't name any names. Cephalo Dollar, he's a crook. They only want filet mignon. That guy wants a $65 million jet. Right? And, 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 and just in case, you're the worshiper, right? This is in the text. You're the worshiper. You're going up in verse, um, let's see, what, what verse in? Verse 16. You're up and you're like, hey, 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 with the fat portion. Listen, I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to worship and give over the fat portion as an honor to the Lord. And you're doing it wrong. That's not the way you're supposed to do it, guys. You're not supposed to use the fork. You're not supposed to ask for all that stuff. And then they have that covered. Look at verse 16 with me. I love this. this is just crazy. And if the man said to them, the one who bringing the worship, no, 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 let them burn the fat first. Let, let, let's follow the law. Then take what you want. Their response, no, give it now. Or I'm taking it. Really? Uh, you're just going to take it? That's how bad it was. Look at the next verse, verse 17. Verse 17. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. You think? For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, I, I know, I, I, don't want, I don't want to take this too far. There are different cultural expressions of worship. But the principle, I think we could draw from this. I think it's safe to say. The principle we draw from this, there's a right way and a wrong way to worship the Lord. We, we're very confident, I'm very confident that the priests in Shiloh, particularly the sons who were overseeing the worship, knew the law. They knew what Leviticus said, Leviticus 7, how the meat was supposed to be handled. They understood that. They disregarded it. And it just reminds me that worship, first and foremost, must be done through the Word of God. The way in which, how in which God revealed himself to us. Not our own thoughts, but what God has declared. Years ago, we did a series on missional worship. And what is a missional, we're a missional church. What, is a, what does a worship service look like? We stated five things that we will do here as we worship the Lord. But the first two are the vital ones. And we said this years ago, and we've been constant since. Number one, it has to be God-centered. It has to be gospel-centered. Number two, it's got to be content-driven. That's why we have verses on the screen. It's about what God has declared in his word. These worthless men were acting as if they were worshiping God, but they were really disregarding God's word. They were treating the Lord with contempt, which means disdain and irreverence blasphemy they cared nothing about god they cared nothing about his word living entirely for themselves and and can you imagine hopefully some of you can't but can you imagine a community built around selfish men who serve only themselves what the community must have looked like and how that leadership and their conducting of worship made that impact on those people 
selfishness around worship. Number two, beautiful contrast, the second one. 11 and 12, we saw the first one, verses 11 and 12. Now look at 18 and 21. 17 ends with they have grave sin. 18 opens up. There's Samuel ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. She went up with her husband, Elkanah, to offer the yearly sacrifices. Samuel got a visit every single year. Mom was coming up with a new robe. You could almost imagine, this woman left her son there, the joy of that yearly's coming, that, that day is coming, that day is coming, and mom would be working hard on that robe because she's going to see her baby boy. And every year, she'd make one because, you know, as soon as she got, you, know, you could see it now. She goes up, she gives them the new robe. They spend their time together. She goes home. What's the first thing she's doing? Making a new robe. I'm going up next year, right? Because she's getting bigger. He needs a new robe. The robe was one that he wore over the linen ephod. It's, the ephod is, at this point was, uh, 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 at what he's wearing was this sleeveless hip garment that members of the Levitical tribe would wear, the priest would wear. And what a contrast. Samuel's faithfulness, his faithful service, and the unfaithfulness of Eli's son. In fact, I think the narrator wants us to see when he says a linen ephod. The linen uh, is a symbol of righteousness and purity in Scripture. In other words, Samuel is wearing what he's supposed to wear. The garment that was supposed to be worn, he followed the commands and the will of God. These garments... Not only garments, but they would have like ceremonial washings in the temple. They had special linen, white linens. They had spotless animals. All this is a reminder of the purity and the holiness of God. That when we come into his presence, he is holy. We are not. Sacrifice for reminding us that we are sinners and that we need a covering of blood. And we'll get to that. In total contrast, abusive behavior as Hophni and, and Phineas, and yet we had a, this, this glimpse of Samuel enjoying his family, his family enjoying him, and the goodness of God. It's a beautiful story. In fact, Hannah had prayed and made a vow, and then Hannah brings her son to the temple, leaves him there. And although Samuel was no longer in her home, I'll tell you what, he was in her heart. And every year she'd make a bigger robe to bring to that boy. Beautiful. Verse 20. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman. For the petition she asked of the Lord. So they would return to their home. Verse 21. Indeed the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived and bore three boys. Two girls. Again, just like in chapter 1, verse 17, this verb that he used, may the Lord, is not a prophetic utterance. It's an expression of desire. It's something that he was uh, uh, hoping for in Hannah. It was really Hannah who prayed, asked God for a son. She vowed to God not to keep him, but to give him back, and she kept her vow. And Hannah had been given uh, a son, and Hannah gave back her son, and she received, as Ricky talked about earlier, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace is so characteristic of our God. No sacrifice ever seems to deprive the children of God. Right? There's always blessing. Now, before you read into this prosperity gospel, that God's, you give a dollar, he'll give you a hundred. I do not believe that that's what he's saying because God's blessing is always financial. There's not a single dollar amount I would give. There's not a single dollar amount I would trade for the intimate presence of God in my life. And, and to be used of him, to make much of him, to see him get glory 
in the lives of his people. And like Hannah, finding my deepest longing, my deepest satisfaction, my deepest unchanging joy in God alone. Not a dollar amount in the world. I can change that. Davis writes this, D.R. Davis in his commentary. Hannah and her husband now disappear from our story. But they are, no, but they and their house full of noisy children should remain witnesses to us of the giving God, end quote. What, what a beautiful story. What a contrast in families, right? The contrast gets worse because what the narrator wants us to see that is that God gave life to Hannah, gave her five children. He gave life to Hannah, and now he's taken the life of Eli's two sons. What a contrast in the story. Verse 21, the boy, the end, the last part of the verse. The boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. In Hebrew, it literally means the boy grew in the presence with the Lord. Same word used in Moses when he was with God and received the Ten Commandments. Same word used in Psalm 130, with God, when he talks about his unfailing love and his, and his full redemption. And, and this little blurp shows that Samuel's enjoying his childhood with, with, with divine favor, making, making uh, not only divine favor, but demonstrating this relationship that he has with the Lord. It was like Moses. This young boy, like Moses. It's a deliberate contrast between the ungodliness of this family and the godliness of the other family. And let me say something before we move on to the next. If you're a young folk here, and I know a lot of them are in, in, the, in, the, in the children's church, so mom, dads, guardians, grandparents, friends, show them this passage. Don't let your youth stop you from pursuing God, loving Jesus, having an intimate relationship with the Lord our God, being passionate about the things of God. Look at this young man, his love and his passion for Jesus. In fact, most commentators think he's preteen, maybe 10, 11, possibly early teen, 12, and here he is serving the Lord, even at that young age. Maybe you're in your teens, and maybe, maybe you're ridiculed for your faith. Maybe you make fun of, been made fun of because you go to church, you're, you're involved in youth group, or you, you, certain things you just won't do, and certain things you just won't laugh at. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, to, to give you strength every day, to overflow in you, so that by the grace of God and the strength of God, you could stand with Jesus, whose eternal love and presence and acceptance of the gospel and in the gospel will sustain you in this twisted, jacked-up world. His presence through the gospel will support you, young folks. Samuel is ministering to the Lord. Whoop, nope, next one back. Sexual sins against women. I went too far, did I? Okay. Go back, would you? Um, So, we have this portrait of Samuel, and now we're back to this grave Sin. Look at verse 22. The old priest, he's an older priest. He's hearing over and over about these, these sons laying with women, having sex with them. Look at verse 22. Right in the church. These, these are women that are serving the tabernacle, right? Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing. To all of Israel, and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. Now, Hophni and Phinehas are guilty of sexual immorality. Chapter 4 will tell us that Phineas was a married man. So not only do we have uh, 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 adultery and fornication, uh, but we have all kinds of sexual sin going on in the church. 
Amazing what they did back then, huh? Slide sarcasm. Catholic priests molesting young boys, evangelical pastors court, prostitution rings, sleeping with members of the church, using their leadership, pastoral care, leadership qualities to prey on women. Right? Before we judge. Before we get all self-righteous and hypocritical, let's be careful. Jesus said anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart or lustful intentions has already committed adultery within his heart. Even the issue of worship and treating the Lord's worship with contempt, we looked at that a moment ago. Let's be careful. You know, are we rightly serving the Lord, worshiping the Lord? Are we, are we rightfully giving of our time, our finances to the Lord? Are we approaching the Lord's Supper when we take it together with thoughtlessness and carelessness? Are we have critical spirits about other people that are doing other things for the Lord? That's contempt. We also treat the Lord's offering with contempt when we reject Jesus Christ. That's probably the greatest contemption or uh, uh, act of contempting that you could possibly do is, is just reject the offering where Jesus gave himself for you, where he gave his life on the cross and you reject that. You look at that offering as disdained. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices and to reject him is truly, truly is to treat the Lord's offering with contempt. Again, we see what's going on here. Let's, let's, before we judge, let's relate. Tough questions. We have children that have done similar things, gone off to college, gone up on their own, right? Let, let's be careful here. Eli jumps in, verse 23. I got something to say, and he speaks. Why do you do such things? He tells his sons. I hear of evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons. It is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Now, notice, you know, first they were, notice progression here. First they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Then they were taking the Lord's offering in the fat of the, of the uh, portions of the fat. Next they're sleeping with women in the temple, in the church. And now they get a bad reputation. Everyone hears about them. Totally dishonor upon themselves and dishonor upon Eli, their father. Very clear. And Eli is not very respected here at this point. I, I think, give him some credit, at least he speaks up, but I think it's a little bit too late. I think that's why the narrator says he's old at this point. Like, it's like a little bit too late. It, the, the, you know, the ship has sailed. The horse is out of the barn, however you want to say it. The main tragedy in this incident really was the failure of Eli to remove his sons from ministry. For their sin. His action or his failing to take action did nothing to restrain the sinful conduct of his sons. It's a little bit too late. So I, I think we can draw from that this moms, dads, loving your children and disciplining your children. Teach them, love them, discipline them, teach them to respect. You as parents, to know right from wrong. Show them and teach them the importance of repenting of sins, of confessing their sins to the Lord, leading them to put their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Proverbs nineteen eighteen: discipline your son while there is hope. Sometimes I've seen it happen. It's a sad place. When they're older, it's so much harder. These guys were not Listen, this is not some fleeting lapse of character or conduct. This is the way of life for these boys. 
And the father now is being totally disrespected and not listened to. And notice Eli. Eli does not say anything to them about their worship practices, about their selfish worship practices, only talks about their sexual sin. Davis writes this, and I think he's right. He says, Eli had rebuked his sons for their moral offenses, sexual sin. Perhaps, though, we can't tell from verses 23 to 25, he also reproved them from the liturgical offenses. That's the the worship, which I don't think he did. But in any case, he says, he had taken no action to expel the sons, Hophni and Phinehas, from their priestly office. Eli might protest, but his sons suffered no unemployment. There was no church discipline, end quote. He didn't do that. He's old now. They're disregarding him. Verse 25, if someone sins against a man, he tells them, God will mediate for them. Listen, there's something we can do, but if you sin against the Lord, who's gonna intercede for you? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. How's that verse? The men were obviously sinning against the worshipers. They were sinning against the women in which they were taken advantage of, but all sin ultimately is against God. They had gone too far. They they are now beyond repentance. The Lord had given them up in their contentment. That's hard for us to comprehend, right? Is it not? I mean, uh, it's wrong to think, as reading this passage, it's wrong to think that somehow the men's hardness of heart is God's fault. That's not what the narrative is saying. Their hardness was both their choice and God's judgment on their choice. Notice it does not say that Hophni and Phinehas did not listen to Eli, and therefore, because they did not listen to their father, therefore God decided to put them to death. That is not what it says. It says Eli's sons did not listen to their father for or because God had decided to put them to death. That's what the text says. Hophni and Phinehas' defiance against their father was not the basis for God's judgment, but the result of his judgment, a perfectly just judgment. It also does not say that Hophni and Phinehas recognized their sin, turned from their sins, repented of their sins. Their heart was so soft for the Lord, and the Lord said, nah, it's too late. God hardened their soft and loving heart and made it rebellious and cold. It doesn't say that either. What it's saying is that they wouldn't listen to their father because God had already decided to put them to death. Repentance was passed. Listen, listen carefully. Whether it was Pharaoh's heart in, in Genesis, in, in Deuteronomy, whether it's Pharaoh's heart that God hardened or where God had already decided to pass judgment on these boys, is God, listen, giving them over to their heart's desires. In other words, God does not have to harden people's hearts that are soft and tender toward him because there are none. God does not have to harden soft and tender hearts toward him because there are none. All have sinned, all have gone astray. All God does is remove his hand of grace and allow the rebellious heart to follow the way in which it wants to go. One commentator wrote, Hophni and Phinehas experienced the fate of men who deliberately sin against the light, who love their lust so well that nothing will induce them to fight against them. They were so hardened that repentance became impossible and it was necessary for them to undergo a full retribution of their wickedness, end quote. And family, as true as that is, and it's true, 
we don't get to play God. We're not God. We don't decide when, that, when repentance is over. God, we don't, we're not God's prosecutors. God's smarter than we are. He sees the heart and we do not. This is not a text to say, oh, I make that decision. You don't. I don't. Again, think about it for a second. How many of us want justice from God? None of us. None of us wants justice, right? We all want grace, mercy, and forgiveness, not justice. But it is a warning because there's an active and passive wrath and judgment of God. God doesn't always send the lightning bolt from sky and, you know, blast you where you are. The passive wrath of God is hearing the words, which I hope none of you are there. May you never hear my word again. May you never hear my word again. May the Holy Spirit never work in your heart again. I will give you over to the evils of your desires. That's a very, very bad place to be. I hope none of you are there. And God is still softening your heart. And next comes judgment. Verse 27 through 34, judgment of God. Verse 27, God raises up this unnamed prophet to speak to Eli. Thus says the Lord, that's prophetic language. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when, when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to the altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? That's the, that's the robe of the, that ephod is the robe of the uh, uh, high priest. I gave to the house of your fathers all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. See what he's saying? When, when I delivered you from the hand of Moses, excuse me, of Pharaoh in Egypt, I established the, the priestly line. I called Aaron, or Aaron, depends on what you, way you want to say it. I had more fun in the first service, but some of you saw that. Anyway, I have a, I'm the one that did that. You have all this privilege. You have all these responsibilities, this unbelievable gift that I, I, I gave you, the priest, to minister on your behalf. What a responsibility you have. Verse 20, then, why then? If I gave you all that, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command from my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel. So Eli may not have been the one with the fork, but obviously according to this text, he was the one eating a filet mignon. He's just sitting around enjoying the food and therefore despising the privilege and responsibility. He was a priest in the line of Aaron. And notice the scorn here and disdain. He's not saying you didn't tell your sons and that's why your judgments come, although that may be part of it, but that's not what it says here. Eli did not, responsibility for their, did not bear responsibility for their conduct. Look what it says. He was judged for what? Honoring his sons, his children, more than the Lord. That's the sin of the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other God before me. It's called idolatry. Matthew Henry writes this. Those that allow and continence approve their children in any evil way and do not use their authority, parents, to restrain and punish them, do in effect honor them more than God being more tender of their reputation than of his glory and more desirous to humor them than to honor him, end quote. That's a tough, that's a, that's a tough word. You're honoring your children more than you are honoring me. Not only did Eli personally benefit by eating the filet mignon, but we see here he's a passive man. 
He's not aggressive at all toward their sins. So we know, I'm a father, grandfather. We know that when the word of God clearly speaks, when God's word clearly tells us, shows us, and we ignore it for the sake of not wanting to rock the boats with our children, it's called scorn. It's called honoring the gifts over God, the giver of the gifts. And God is reminding Eli, this, this privilege you had, this privilege you have as, as ministering in my name in my, for my people did not come from you having children. It came from me. It came from me. Eli should have honored God above his sons and disciplined them when he had the opportunity. Again, Ralph Davis writes this. This prophecy against Eli emphasizes that you can end up in a grave sin by thinking it very important to be nice to people. How easy it is to practice a gutless compassion, gutless gutless compassion, that never wants to offend anyone, that equates niceness with love and thereby, thereby ignores God's law and essentially despises his holiness. We do not necessarily seek God's honor when we spare human feelings, end quote. Don't walk away from this and saying, okay, I could be a, a jerk. I could just tell people off and tell them all about this. That's not what we're saying. But there are times where we have to say, you know what? This is best for them, especially for your children. Right? So Eli, passivity demonstrates. Eli's passivity demonstrates. His lack of discipline demonstrates that he loves his sons more than he loves God. He'd rather honor their ego then honor the Lord. And now verse 30, his line comes to an end, his lineage, priestly lineage comes to an end, verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father shall go in and out before me. That was my promise. They'll go in and out before me forever. But now, obviously it was conditional, but, for me, but far be it for me that those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall lightly be esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength, literally chop your arm off. That's literal, not like literally chop his arm off, but the Hebrew idiom. And the strength of your father's house so that there will be an old man, not an old man in your house. In other words, you are somehow, Eli is in the lineage, priestly lineage of Aaron, probably Aaron's two sons. And now you are part of that, you are part of that privilege, but I'm cutting it off. You're done. The covenant blessing is over. Verse 32. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall be not an old man in your house forever. Verse 33. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off. It's Zodak. We'll we'll look at that later on in 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 the book. The only one I'll not cut off from the altar shall be spared. To weep his eyes and to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword. And this shall come upon you. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Wow. This may seem like really harsh to you. If they were your sons, they will both die on the same day. You're thinking, that's harsh. But if they were your daughters that these men were abusing... If you were the offerer that brought your offering and you were muscled like Don Corleone taking it from you, you'd be thinking, that's justice. Depends on perspective. Have fun with that in your community groups. (laughs) Finally, hard story, but it ends great. Amen. I'm glad it ends great. 
This, this passage signals so many places of the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God. Look at verse 26 with me real quick. Now the boy, again, we're zooming in. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Okay, again, verse 26 just dropped in there. The contrast is clear. Eli's sons, the wickedness of their sons, their corrupt and wicked sons. And yet God, in the midst of this darkness, is raising up this young boy, this young lad, to serve him faithfully and obediently. But this verse should seem somewhat familiar to some of you. Because we read in the gospel according to Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus himself increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's deliberate. That's deliberate. Why do you think Luke chooses to use that description from the author of 1 Samuel? And Luke says the same thing. Why? Think about it. I mean, just think about it. The days in which Jesus was born is in that dark place, that dark place in Israel's history. The religious structure has collapsed. The, the word of God was no longer taking presence. They weren't soft toward the things of God. Same thing with Samuel and Eli's house. And just like the days of Samuel, while things are looking very miserable in Israel, a young boy was being raised. I mean, think about it. If you went to the temple in Samuel's day and you see the corruption, you see the wickedness going on, and you see a little 10-year-old boy worshiping, you're not thinking, he's going to save the day. Same thing when you brought your little wooden table that was broken to a carpenter's house. And there was 11-year-old Jesus, 10-year-old Jesus, thinking that's the savior of the world. But God was doing something in the midst of that darkness. God was raising up a child, the Christ, the anointed king, the one that Hannah mentioned in chapter 2, verse 10, and the New Testament clearly declares that he will come and he will save his people from their sins. He will sit on David, King David's throne, have an everlasting throne that he will sit on. And he, Jesus, like Samuel, his prototype, will exercise his priesthood in a way that would deliver people from their sins, but oh, so differently will Jesus be the priest. Look at verse... Look at the verse 34 to 6 to close. God in the midst of rebellion offers this hope. All, excuse me, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, NIV firm, NAS, enduring house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever, the king, the anointed one, the priest, the king, and everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a priest, for him, for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat of the morsel of bread. Now think, who's this faithful priest? Who's this enduring house that will last eternally, pointing to the Davidic covenant? Immediately, Probably speaking of, of, of Eli, who will, excuse me, Samuel, or maybe Zodak, who will take the place immediately. But clearly, the writer and the narrator wants us to look ahead to the one true faithful high priest. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the true and better priest. He is the true and better king. He is the true and better prophet. Listen to the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect 
has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and grace in help to help a time of need. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. He is the ultimate high priest. Again, chapter 7 of Hebrews. The former priests were many in numbers because they were prevented to serve continually in the office because they were dead. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. Why? He endures forever. He is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, listen, who is holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted like a king above the heavens. He has no need like other priests to offer sacrifices every day. First for his own sins, then for the people. Since Jesus did this once for all, he offered himself up. One last verse. Every priest stands daily at the service. Chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service. Standing, doing his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But when Jesus Christ, the king, the high priest, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you see the contrast? You see, oppressive leaders prey on weak people. Oppressive leaders prey on weaknesses and hold wrongdoings and mistakes against you. But Jesus extends mercy and grace and love and sympathizes with us and forgives us of our sins. Bullies are more concerned with what you do for them. Jesus wants you to trust what he has done for you. Dictators drain you dry. But the Lord Jesus Christ fills your soul. That's the true priest. That is the true high priest, king, and prophet. His name is Jesus Christ. Now, I want to end with this story, and we'll wrap it right up right here. There's a story told by a preacher. His name is Harry Ironside. He tells the days of the prairies when the prisoner, excuse me, when the pioneers made their way across the central states in pursuing homesteading. As they crossed through a river and they had gone to a certain distance, all of a sudden, out in the, in the distance, they saw smoke filling the skies right above them, or right ahead of them. There was a bush, a brush, a brush fire, brush fire coming in their direction. The, 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 the settlers had no way to turn around. They couldn't go back over the river. They had nothing to do. They had no place to go. The smoke was coming toward them. The fire was coming for them. So what they did, they, they, in a circle around them, they burned the brush where they were standing. And it went wider and wider and wider in a circle. And they burned all the brush and they were inside that circle when the fire came. And a little girl who was alarmed when they saw that fire coming, and the little girl said to them, you know, I- I'm afraid. What are we going to do? The fire is going to overtake us. An elderly man turned to the little child, and he said this, my child, the flames cannot reach you because we are standing where the flames have already burnt. That's what it means to be in Jesus Christ. Because he has borne the judgment and the wrath of God for us. We are guilty of sin. We've seen it in this story. We've seen it in the sons. And we know it in our own lives. And this story of these corrupted sons should teach us and to show us that God is holy. He does have wrath towards sin. That we are subject to his judgment, to his wrath. But when we trust in the true high priest who gave his life and poured out his blood so that we can have forgiveness of sins, that the wrath that we deserve was poured out on him. And then three days later, while he's dead, buried in the tomb, he rises from the dead. 
He bears our judgment so we don't have to. Have you trusted Jesus Christ, the true high priest, the prophet and the king of kings and Lord of lords who went to that place where the fire of God came down and he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in that fiery time of wrath being poured out on him for our sake, in our place, he cries out, I thirst so that you can have water of life. Have you trusted him? And maybe you have. And maybe it's just a reminder that it's not about what you, it's about Christ has already done for you. Let's worship the Lord together. If you've never trusted Christ, today's the day. I need a high priest. I need a sacrifice for sins. Jesus, you are that sacrifice. Father, we thank you for the faithful high priest who doesn't stand daily sacrificing. He doesn't stand daily sacrificing, but gave himself a single sacrifice and then sat down because the work was done. It is finished. From the cross he cried. Father, help us to see the finished work of Christ. Help us to trust the finished work of Christ. Help us see the beauty and incalculable worth of Christ and worship him and worship him alone. May we all get uh, the eyes of faith today as we sing and properly respond for your glory and our joy.